Open your Bibles to the fifth chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, as we return to this great text this morning, verses 22 through 24, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, 22 to 24, and let me pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of opening your word together this morning. May your spirit teach us from the scriptures, Father, that we might hear from you the message that each of us needs to hear. May it be united with believing hearts that we might go forth and do as we have been instructed. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Beloved, the Proverbs say, Proverbs 18 and verse 22, that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The Bible exalts marriage. The Bible supports marriage. And that really shouldn't really surprise us because God supports and exalts marriage. After all, he's the one who invented it, right? In the second chapter of Genesis, we find that account. And so the Bible is pro-marriage from beginning to end, pro-marriage. Interestingly, as you read the biblical accounts of marriage, you often come across marriages that have been spoiled or defiled or bent by the disfigurement of a husband's sin. It's not uncommon, particularly in the Old Testament, to read about marriages that are definitely not something we would want to emulate. And yet, in spite of that reality, the Old Testament abundantly uses marriage as an illustration of the relationship of God to his ancient people, Israel. So even though the picture is spoiled, as it were, or or blurred, it's still repetitively used by God to illustrate something about himself and his people. And when you come to the pages of the New Testament, it doesn't change. Marriage is used there, and it's used for an illustration of the relationship of God with his people, and most particularly, it's used to speak about Christ and the church. And in fact, in the New Testament, in this very chapter of this book, we find out that, that God designed marriage with a, with a particular purpose, and that purpose was to illustrate the relationship of Christ and the church a mystery that was unknown in the Old Testament but has been revealed through the Apostle Paul here in the New. So marriage was designed by God not just for human flourishing. We could even say that human flourishing is a byproduct. But marriage was designed to communicate something about the gospel. In fact, that enables us to confidently say that Every marriage preaches the gospel, either a true gospel or a false one. But every single marriage is 
preaching about Christ in the church. This reality lifts marriage um, out of the realm of, you know, whatever works or whatever is most pleasing to me. That's how my marriage will work. Or, or whatever the prevailing opinion of society happens to be from generation to generation or, or one society to another. And it moves marriage out of that realm and, and into the realm of the non-negotiable transcendent truth. Let that sink in for a moment. Marriage is not a human invention. And we don't have the right to define it any way we want. Marriage was created by God to communicate a profound truth, the gospel, the relationship of Christ and his church, his bride. And in fact, we can say this, I think, with good confidence. Marriage is a union of equals, each with a set of divinely assigned roles which are permanently fixed and non interchangeable, rooted in the permanently fixed and non-interchangeable nature of human gender and sexuality. Let me say it again. Marriage is a union of equals, each with a set of divinely, divinely assigned roles which are permanently fixed and non-interchangeable rooted in the permanently fixed and non-interchangeable nature of human gender and sexuality. Yeah, that takes us right into the middle of the culture war, doesn't it? Because the culture war, beloved, ultimately is about the gospel. It's about the gospel. For husbands, one of his key roles is that of leadership, or as the Bible presents it, headship. And for the wife, one of her key roles is following her husband's leadership, submission. These are just one of the permanently fixed, non-interchangeable realities of a divinely instituted marriage. We are, again, returning to biblical authority and submission, the twin pillars of a godly marriage, looking at the role of a wife, the role of a wife. And this is part two, part two of that section. And we noted last time in verses 22, 23, 24, and then verse 33, that together there we find seven aspects of a wife's submission that explain, justify, and exalt this godly characteristic of Christian wives. Seven of them. Let me give you the seven. Let me give you the seven. Then you'll kind of know where we're, going to, where we're going here. Because we're not going to finish today. We'll be back again next Sunday to finish that section. But the first aspect is that a wife's submission is voluntary. 
a wife's submission is voluntary. Secondly, a wife's submission is specific. Specific. A wife's submission is devotional. Third aspect, a wife's submission is devotional. Fourth, a wife's submission is comprehensive. A wife's submission is comprehensive. Five, a wife's submission is respectful. A wife's submission is respectful. Number six, a wife's submission is difficult. Difficult. And then seventh and finally, a wife's submission is beautiful. It is beautiful. So let me review quickly the three we looked at last week, and then we will forge ahead and look at that fourth aspect this morning in the time available to us. So just reviewing last week, right? A wife's submission is voluntary. Verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands. We looked at that first part of that verse last week, and we spent some time looking at it. We looked at it grammatically, we looked at it theologically, and we looked at it contextually. And we noted from those angles that the the call to submission is a call to a voluntary submission, that it is something wives must voluntarily do. It is a voluntary activity. It is not a natural ability. It is not the product of human temperament. But as we noted, it is a spiritual discipline that must be taught and must be learned. It is a spiritual discipline. And that's exactly what we noted last time Paul teaches, right, in Titus chapter 2, in verses 3 through 5. There he calls upon the older and more spiritually mature and experienced women of the church to train those younger wives in this reality, how to grow in this spiritual discipline that is foundational to a wife's role in a godly marriage. Biblical submission is voluntary. Second, we looked last week at that a wife's submission is specific. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Right? We noted that Paul instructs a wife to be submissive to her own husband, not to all men generally. Not to all men generally, to one man specifically. And we spent some time considering the implications of that statement with regard to a young woman considering marriage. And the reality that a woman should choose wisely with the counsel of her parents who should choose wisely so that the voluntary submission that the Bible calls her to will be a joy and not a lifetime of painful duty. A joyful delight to follow this man rather than a lifetime of painful duty. A wife's submission is specific. Third, last week, we said a wife's submission is devotional. A wife's submission is devotional. Verse 22 again, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord. We noted that a godly wife recognizes that authority structures are from God. God is the one who establishes human authority structures and then calls his children to be submissive to the various authority structures that he has created. 
And by submitting to the, the authority, the headship of her husband, a godly woman understands that she is in reality submitting to the God who stands behind that authority structure. And that specifically, when she submits to her husband, she's submitting to the Lord, who is the creator of marriage. And that is an act of worship. That is an act of worship. That makes a wife's submission devotional. All right, those are the easy ones. Four, a wife's submission is comprehensive, verse 24. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wife ought to be to their husbands in everything. I think probably of the seven aspects that I've given you here this morning, this one is the one that causes the most heartburn. Let's just acknowledge it right up front. This is hard. But I, in starting here, I guess I'd like to just point this out. Maybe this helps. It was probably no easier for the wives in the first century in Ephesus to receive this command. No easier than it is for wives of the 21st century to receive it. In other words, it wasn't easy for them either. It wasn't easy for them. In everything, in everything, wives are to be subject to their husbands in everything. This little expression by the Apostle Paul establishes the boundaries and the extent of a husband's authority in marriage. It is the boundaries and the extent of his headship. Now, Paul does not say that wives ought to be subject to their husbands in absolutely everything. So there are some obvious qualifiers to this phrase, in everything. Likely, Paul does not discuss the exceptions because he assumes that Christian women and men don't need it spelled out for them. But, but, just so it's on the record here, okay? Let me get it on the record. God does not, God does not, God does not require wives to submit to their husband's authority when that authority is being used to coerce them to sin. Okay? You get that? In the words of Peter in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. That is a biblical principle. Neither, as one writer puts it, should this qualifier in everything be read as though it justifies any and all opinions a husband might hold. Rather, Paul's meaning is that the husband's authority extends to all areas of the marriage relationship. Okay? The context is the marriage relationship. The in everything is 
refers to the marriage relationship, and believe me, that is plenty broad enough. Plenty broad enough. This phrase is quite expansive. It covers all aspects of marital life. Beloved, because the husband's headship is real, verse 23, the husband is, indicative verb, statement of reality, the husband is the head of the wife, because his headship is real, his authority is real. It's a real authority. And with this authority comes the responsibility, gentlemen, to exercise it in a God-honoring way. Verse 25, right? A servant leadership, a, a, a sacrificial love. After the first of the year, we'll be back to this and looking at 15, I believe it is, aspects of man's authority in a marriage. Okay? So there will be plenty to say about how to love and how to lead. But let me say this. As anyone who has ever had and exercised authority knows, you cannot and do not make every single decision. If you are in authority, you cannot make every single decision, and you do not make every single decision. That's not what it means to exercise authority. Many decisions are delegated. They are delegated to other people. But ultimately, the responsibility for the delegated decision still remains with you, the one in authority. So you can delegate authority, and, but you can never delegate or shed the responsibility. Such is the nature of leadership, gentlemen. Such is the nature of leadership. So, wives, submit to your husbands to their husbands in everything, in everything. I want to take some time and explore the boundaries of everything. But as we do that, and as a preamble into doing that, let's just say this. A husband who is making decisions in his marriage, needs to do so with the careful consultation of his helpmate. She is your helpmate. She has been given by God to you to benefit you. You are better with her than without her, significantly better. But in the end, the decisions of a marriage remain the husband's responsibility. There's no avoiding or evading that reality. If a married couple, after prayerful and honest discussion, are unable to come to a consensus with regard to a particular issue, then the wife must look to her husband to make that final call. That's what it means to exercise authority. And at that point, ladies... It is your responsibility to joyfully submit to the decision that has been made. Hence my caution last week. Right? Be careful who you marry. Be careful. 
So let's explore the boundaries here a little bit of this expression in everything. Okay? Let's talk about some examples of what does it mean in everything. So here are some ideas for you. It is the husband's authority and thus the wife's spiritual duty to submit with regard to where the family will live. With regard to where the family will live. In other words, what neighborhood will we live in? What city will we live in? What state will we live in? What country will we live in? Where the family lives is ultimately the responsibility of the husband. How the family will spend their money. How will we spend our money? In other words, our budget. Our budget. Our use of debt. Will we borrow money? How much money will we borrow? On what terms will we borrow it? For what will we borrow it? Giving. How much will we give? To whom shall we give? How often will we give? Right? Decisions to be arrived at collaboratively, but ultimately, it is the husband's final responsibility. Whether we will have children or not. Whether we will have children or not. How many children will we have? How many? How will we raise our children? In other words, discipline. How will we discipline them? What means and methods will we use to discipline our children? It is ultimately the husband's responsibility. The spiritual formation of our children. Later we're going to read that parents are to bring up their children, right, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But you'll notice it's in verse 4 of chapter 6 that is laid on fathers. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, or in the old King James, the fear and admonition of the Lord. So the spiritual formation of the children is ultimately the father's responsibility, the husband's responsibility. The education of his children. Will they go on to, to college or not? Will they go to vocational training? Will they apprentice somewhere? All of the myriads of decisions... Will they borrow money or not borrow money? All of these things are designed to be made collaboratively, but if you cannot agree, then ultimately the husband has to make that decision. Clothing. Clothing. Quantity. How much clothing will we have? How many Jackets, slacks, shoes, hats, coats, the whole thing, right? How many? How much? Style. The style of the clothing. 
the modesty, modesty of the clothing. You remember back in earlier in chapter 5, we spent time talking about modesty, didn't we? It is ultimately the, the husband's responsibility for the modesty of his wife. It is the father's responsibility for the modesty of his daughter. It should be arrived at collaboratively, but in the end, he is responsible. Cost. How much money will we spend on clothing? Do we buy the latest brands? Or do we shop the bargains? It's the father's ultimate decision. Food. Food. Will we be vegetarian or non-vegetarian? What about the nutrition? Will we eat fast food, non-fast food? Will we drink sugared soda pops, non-sugared soda pops? I mean, there's a myriad of questions. Flavor. Whose ethnicity will prevail? Whose ethnicity will prevail? Quality. Right? Organic, non-organic, brand name, non-brand name. I mean, it's just, we live in such a confusing world. A lot of these decisions were a lot easier when there were less options. Transportation. What type of vehicle? How many vehicles? New or used? How new? How used? Choice of and involvement in a local church. What church will we be part of? Is ultimately the husband's decision. What will our involvement be in that local church? Joshua says at the end of Joshua, at the end of his life in Joshua 24, 15, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It is ultimately the husband's decision for church involvement. Entertainment choices and quantity. All right, how much time will we spend on the internet? How much time with video games? How much television time? Husbands, it is your responsibility. You may delegate these decisions, but you do not evade the responsibility for them. Older children's romantic involvements. When will they date? Whom may they date? It is the husband's responsibility. Here's one that's bound to be controversial. A wife's friendships. A wife's friendships. Her choice of friends. Are they a good influence on you? I think they are. Your husband thinks they're not. Where does the decision lie? Where does the decision lie? Time invested in relationships. How much time 
A wife invests in relationships outside of her home are ultimately her husband's responsibility. Working outside the home, what type of work, how many hours a week, how far will she travel, these are all ultimately his responsibility and ultimately, wives, your responsibilities to submit to the final decision. The family calendar and commitments. The family calendar and commitments. How much home time versus how much away time. How many commitments a week. What are the relational fatigue levels of the family? You are ultimately responsible, husbands. Hospitality. Hospitality, the love of strangers. To what extent will your marriage be hospitable? What frequency will you engage in hospitality? This is not the wife's responsibility. This is the husband's responsibility. Paul says as much in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, right? Talking about the qualifications of an elder and says an elder must be hospitable. Well, if it wasn't his responsibility, then Paul wouldn't call him to it as a character quality for eldership. Gentlemen, if your home is hospitable or not, that's your responsibility. Wives, it is your responsibility to submit to your husband's decisions in these matters. And if you're wise, you will arrive at a collaborative decision that's very easy to submit to. Oh, one more. Use of leisure time. Use of leisure time. The number and frequency of family vacations. Right? The number and frequency of family vacations. Will we go away? Won't we go away? How often will we do this? How will we use our weekends? Will we have a date night or not? These all ultimately are the responsibilities of husbands. And wives are called to submit, right? Look at verse 24 again. So wives ought to be, excuse me, as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. This is not an exhaustive listing of potential areas. It is representative, designed to make us think. Now, question. It's probably been rolling around in your mind since we first began. What if my husband does not understand or follow through on his leadership responsibilities? Great question. What if my husband doesn't understand his responsibilities? In other words, he won't make any decisions. He just says, honey, whatever you want to do, just do whatever you want. Or he doesn't follow through. He says, yeah, that's my responsibility. I'll, I'll make that decision, but he never makes it. What's a wife to do? Well, 
If he is a spiritual man, hang on to this now, if he is a spiritual man with a renewed mind and heart, he will respond in faith to the Spirit and the Word. If he is a spiritual man, he will respond, right, to the Spirit and the Word. Now, maybe not immediately, and maybe not completely, but surely and truly over time. So Christian wives, take comfort in this reality. If you are married to a spiritual man, he will respond beginning in January to the 15 aspects, okay? (laughs) So hang on. As a godly wife, pray for him. It's not any easier, I can just say this, it's not going to be any easier for, for when we get to what's required of a husband than is what's required of a wife, okay? I suspect somehow that each side looks at the others and thinks, wow, you got the easy end of the deal, okay? Not so much. So pray and respectfully seek to discuss your area of concern with him in a non-conflict time, okay? Right in the middle of a conflict is not a great time. Let's talk about roles, okay? That conversation is not going to end well. So in a non-conflict time, say, honey, can we, can we just talk about the kids? I, I, I need you to, to exercise some, some leadership here. I feel like it's all hanging on me. Beloved, we cannot sanctify another person. In other words, husbands, you cannot make your wives submit. We talked about that, right? Submission is voluntary. It is a spiritual discipline that has to be learned and taught. But you can't do it. You can't make her do it, and you can't sanctify her. And and wives, you can't sanctify your husbands. You can't sanctify your husbands. And the reason is, is because you can't reach into anybody's heart. Only God can reach into the heart. It's off limits to the rest of us. But what we can do and what we must do is seek our own growth in godliness. So this, these messages here from Ephesians 5, and following, right? They are, they are not for the person sitting next to you. They are for you. They are for you. We can grow in godliness. And growing in godliness includes learning contentment and patience as we wait on the Lord to work in the life of our husband or our wife. All right, one other thing here. Before we leave this topic, this aspect of a wife's submission, right, that it is comprehensive, I think we ought to pause for a moment, look back at at verse 24, and consider the comparison that Paul is drawing here. As the church is subject to Christ, so also. You see the as, so also? Okay? There's a comparison being drawn here. And the comparison that Paul is drawing is between the submission of the church to Christ and the submission of a wife to her husband. So we would be remiss if we don't at least spend a little bit of time talking about how does the church submit to Christ? Because that is the standard that's being put forth here. 
What is the pattern of a wife's submission that is to look like the church's submission to Christ? Right? What does the church look like when it submits to Christ? That's the pattern for a wife. So what does the pattern look like? Oh, here's a few ideas, really quickly. A few ideas. First, the church's submission to Christ is authentic. It is authentic submission. It's authentic. Right? Jesus says in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? A church that is not following Christ and obedient to his word is a church that is at best disobedient and at worst apostate. You can go to the book of Revelation, right? Revelation chapters 2 and 3, to the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation and, and see that Christ rebukes those churches, or several of them, for failing to submit to his authority. And he even goes so far as the, the Ephesian church to threaten to remove their candlestick if they do not repent. So it's very serious. Being submissive to Christ is not simply lip service. It is demonstrated in action. Okay? There's the money statement. Being submissive to Christ is not simply lip service. It is demonstrated in action. Or in the words of James in chapter 2, right? Our faith is revealed in our deeds. And so, if that is the pattern that a wife is to model her submission to her husband after, it has to be not lip service. It has to be authentic submission. And it will show itself to be authentic in deeds. In deeds. It's authentic. Secondly, it is heartfelt. It is heartfelt. The church submits to the authority of Christ because we want to. Because we want to. Right? Our, our submission to Christ as a church is a spirit-produced voluntary desire to do what he asks us to do. Now, Christ is the perfect leader, right? All his decisions are just and right. And that's a far cry from a human husband whose decisions are sinfully flawed and faltering and produced as a result of human weakness. But the heartfelt desire for a, for a wife to submit to her husband can nonetheless be there when she understands that ultimately her submission to her husband is a submission to Christ whom she loves. And thus you can submit, ladies, to a, to a really flawed husband. And guess what? That's all husbands. There are no unflawed husbands, just like there are no unflawed wives. But you can submit to this flawed man. And you can do so with a heartfelt desire. And when you keep in mind that your submission to him is ultimately your submission to Christ. Remember I said a wife's submission is devotional. It is devotional. It is heartfelt. It is joyous. It is joyous. When a husband is loving his wife as Christ loves the church, submission to his headship is a joy. 
not a burden. When he is not loving you, ladies, right, like Christ loves the church, following his authority can still become a joy when you understand and take seriously the words of James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. In other words, there is still joy available to a wife in a situation with a husband who is not loving her sacrificially. It's a different path of joy. It's a hard path of joy, but it's a path of joy nonetheless. And Christ will give grace in those moments in time of need. But husbands, let's do this, huh? Let's agree together to try to make it a joy for our wives. What do you think? Can we, can we make a serious effort with that? Let's try to make it a joy in that path so that she doesn't have to go the James 1 route, okay? <laughs> oh, honey, don't worry about it. You've always got the James 1 route, you know? <laughs> I'm sanctifying you. Okay, there's a Greek word for that. It's called blockhead. Okay? It's called blockhead. All right. It's authentic, it's heartfelt, it's joyous. One more. It's secure. It's secure. The, Christ, the, the, the submission of the church to Christ is, is a secure submission. What I mean by that is that the church finds security and comfort in their submission to Christ. It's a great place to be. A great place to be. So should a wife find comfort and security in her husband's loving headship over her. She should not find it a threat to her individuality or her human dignity, but instead a place of great security and comfort. This is how God would have it be. Marriage painting a picture of Christ in the church. Beloved, for the sake of the gospel, this is how God set it all up. This is how God set up marriage. It communicates. Every single marriage communicates. And it communicates about Christ and the church. It's in service to this gospel reality that God created man and woman and, and put them together in, a, in certain defined roles. That's why they're not interchangeable. That's why they're permanent. Because this is a permanent and fixed picture for all the ages, for all cultures and all times. It is a gospel witness and has been since the beginning of time. We will find our greatest human flourishing when we wholeheartedly embrace this reality rather than buck against it. This is how God has put it together. We will find our greatest satisfaction, our greatest human flourishing, when we do it God's way with a whole heart. And we're living in a world that does not want to hear this message. Does not want to hear it. 
Let's pray. Our Father, the message of this passage confronts us deeply. As we'll see next time, it's as to why it's so difficult, but it but it is. I can only imagine how difficult it must be for wives to hear these words and to think through the realities of it all. But at the same time, Father, I pray for my sisters that they could get a glimpse of the glory of Christ in all of this and that they would be encouraged and not, not see the, Paul's words here as somehow depersonalizing them or, or giving them second-class status or, or anything else. Or, Father, I confess my own shortcomings and weaknesses as a husband and My brothers would join me, and Father, for mankind in general, as husbands, we have all failed, and some have failed very deeply and very seriously. And yet, Father, you know all of this, yet you chose to make marriage one of the enduring pictures that is woven into the fabric of creation to portray the, this profound relationship of your own Son, Jesus Christ, and the church. The deepest and most intimate of gospel truth, woven inextricably into these human relationships. And so, Father, I pray for, for grace to overcome our sin and weakness. I pray for boldness of faith to believe the Word and act upon it. I pray that you would work in our hearts through your Spirit to cause us to love your Word, to seek to apply it, to be quick to repent when we fall short, and and to be earnest to seek forgiveness from the one we love whom we have hurt and disappointed, sinned against. Father, I pray for the comfort that comes in knowing that our sin is covered on the cross of Jesus Christ. And if we are your children by faith, then we will not stand at the judgment for these sins. Christ has taken it all. Now the God of peace who brought you up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, we're actually a couple of minutes early, but nobody will complain. Go and, uh, I kept you along last week, so go and get your children. Okay, please, right now, go and be back here in 10 minutes. Okay, go get your children and please be back here in 10 minutes.